Cool. All right. And we're rolling. I am fairly confident that this is not going to fuck up. We have a backup. It's important to have a backup. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, technology, folks. Am I right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's why I'm a Luddite. I love technology. The solution to and the cause of all of our problems. Like, nothing ever just works the way it's supposed to. Yeah. That'd be no fun. You know, you gotta have, like, a little mini quest when you use anything. Well, well, you know... This is like a good uh, a good way to open the episode. Technology doesn't work great for any of us. It certainly doesn't work great for podcasters or for workers. But it sure as hell works well for the capitalist oligarchs. Bezos never has problems with technology. He, he implements what he wants, when he wants. Damn the consequences. It's a beautiful thing, you know. That's why capitalism. That's why I'm always saying capitalism is the best system for oligarchs, right? Totally, man. I mean, if I was an <laughs> oligarch, I would love it. Like you couldn't think of a better system to design if you were a, a, if the owner of a giant capitalist firm, or even if you owned a lot of stocks and assets. I mean, best system in the in the world, baby. Yeah, but some of these big capitalists are throwing their capitalist ideals under the bus because they just want to make money. Yeah. According to the Wall Street Journal. Did you see that? Did you oh. see that, Edward? Oh, was it was it the one where they were warning against uh, corporations being too big? It was, it was like down with big business. Yes. Um, <laughs> the corporations are these like, you know, big tech, big finance. These big capitalists are throwing their free market ideals under the bus uh-huh. because they just want to make money. And I'm like, what do you think free market ideals are? <laughs> There was a line in there. They were like, you know, we at the Wall Street Journal have always been warning about the excess of private power. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a funny break. Like, what? Oh, man. We unpacked that pretty well last episode, I thought. We, yeah. We took, the, yeah. we took the Wall Street Journal editorial board down a couple notches. Yeah. <laughs> we got them. Got their asses. So, uh, I guess before we go any further, I should introduce our guest. His name is Edward Anguiso Jr. He's a writer for Motherboard, as well as the host of This Machine Kills, a podcast. How you doing, Edward? Doing good. You know, uh, welcome. Um, thank you. You know, this is. It feels good. You know, finally uh, moved to New York. Uh, my room <laughs> is a mess, and all my technology in the room doesn't work. But it's okay. You know. Gotta love a Sunday. Yeah. Sunday technology battle. Yeah, the best Sunday. <laughs> a, a couple of generations ago, you would have been in church, and now here you are podcasting. Actually, it would have been a, uh, my my family raised me in the Seventh Day Adventist Church, so oh. on Saturdays. Okay, for some reason, <laughs> and it wouldn't have been some generations back. It would have been like a few years ago. Yeah, actually, yeah, you're right. <laughs> it would have been like ten years ago, actually. I don't know that much about the Seventh Day Adventists, other than the fact that they're vegetarian, uh-huh. and I've I've gone to several really good vegetarian restaurants run by them. Yeah, yo, they can they do vegetarian food really well. If I was still Seventh Day Adventist, I'd probably be a vegetarian. Um, they are really, uh, really, um, really into the Protestant, you know, uh, aesthetic. You know, no sort of booze, alcohol. None of those toxins. No fun, you know. Um, I don't know what else. Uh, I don't really remember much except the like the prof. There's like a prophecy that the world was supposed to end around the time of the Civil War. <laughs> oh, oops. <laughs> <laughs> totally not related. I'm sure. That's a problem. That's a problem with prophecies, man. 
but I guess they, I guess they carry it on. Speaking of vegetarian, did you guys see that thing that's going around, like the conservative meme that Biden's going to um, institute meat rations, that every American's only going to get four pounds of red meat a year? It's not going to bother the Seventh Day Adventists, but it's pretty shocking that big government communist tyranny of Joe Biden. AOC was trying to do the same thing, but they stopped her. Good. Thank God. They did enough segments about it on Fox News that they spread awareness of the problem Mm -hmm. and she was stopped. (laughs) I say we have to push Biden and AOC to the left and demand a two pound maximum on red meat per year for the Americans. (laughs) This is the way communism can win. We could do that. You know, if the IWW was pushing in the 1930s for a four-hour uh, workday and a four-day work week when the AFL-CIO was calling for eight, then we can start minimizing the red meat <laughs> consumption in this country and win over the working class with our right. radical demands. Nobody wants red meat. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the whole backstory to that shit. I'm sure it's some like um, hysterical sort of smear campaign. But it is true that people should be eating a lot less red meat uh, for the environment. Not just for themselves, but also for the environment. But, you know, well, I don't... I must step ahead, because I don't eat that shit. I, uh, I'm a pescatarian, which means I am polluting my body with mercury from the ocean. <laughs> yeah, just but that. But I've just, you know, as Matt Crispin has pointed out to me, we're probably the last generation that's even going to be able to eat fish. So, you know, better get it while the knobs are good. Well, why are we the last to eat fish? It's because we just devastated the, the ocean ecosystem. Yeah, I yeah, think man. the oceans are not it's doing fucked. great right now. I'm getting so black-pilled on all the climate stuff. I just, uh, I don't know, man. Five- the ocean is canceled. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we did it. We finally did it. I'm going to start reading that Inhabit magazine and writing for them about, like, climate communism, about how, like, you know, it's a very important time if you're, if you're a human because similar to the bottleneck of, like, 100,000 years ago when there are only, like, 12 humans left when humans almost got wiped out, there's going to be another great bottleneck like that now. So if you're able to have kids and, like, they're one of the 50 or 100 that survives this bottleneck and goes on, your genes are just going to be spread forever, man. Really like powerful. Khan. Exactly. Everyone can be a Genghis Khan if wow. you're just lucky enough. All right. We can be a communist Genghis Khan. <laughs> Genghis Khan. Khanzism. Genghis Communizer. The immortal thought of Genghis Khan. <laughs> I'm loving the idea of a bunch of communists just on like giant stallions riding around with, uh, with bows and arrows, like encircling the capitalist enemies. Yeah. Hunting down for capitalism. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> I mean, this is not exactly the same thing, but I have heard communization theory caricatured as spontaneous urban Paul Pot. So, <laughs> you know, we'll see. Fuck around, find out. I mean, what if we could? What if we could combine the tactics of Genghis Khan with the achievement of Pol Pot in abolishing the law of value and money? If we could do those things together and synthesize them, I think that's a way forward. That's what Fox News is scared of. That's that's why they don't want the red meat to be banned because that's gonna happen. You can't. Yeah, we like without the red meat, there's no way that the Genghis con- communists right. could even ride that far and powerfully on their horses. So yes. we need to be having all that red meat so that we can like tear down the steps on steeds yes. and take down uh, Elon Musk and, De- and and Bezos and everybody. That's right. Speaking of which, man, I've been wanting to have you on for a minute because. Um, you know, I saw your tweets. 
And Thank you. I think they're they're good tweets. <laughs> I know. Th- doesn't that make you happy? That you, that's the thing you're known for. Is your fucking tweets. I love it. Yeah, I have but, some good uh, tweets sometimes. You do, and I saw you know some of your reporting. It's very good. Um, and before we get into some of the tech stuff, I want to try to be topical for a minute, as we not always are at the Antifada, because your most recent article was about um, the Chauvin verdict, specifically how police unions are kind of throwing Derek Chauvin under the bus now, and what's going on with that. So is, what, what's going on with that? Is it because they finally want to hold the bad cops accountable right. for killing <laughs> people and create systemic change, or what? I think, um, you know, a good analog for it is at the turn of the, uh, you know, turn of the 2000s, police had this sort of, you know, PR crisis, uh, for lack of a better word, where, you know, the public just also didn't have a lot of trust in them. And there was this very intentional shift towards uh, evidence-based policy, right? The idea that, you know, we can prove we're not racist, we can prove that we're fighting crime if we rely heavily on statistics and if we rely heavily on analytics and on accumulating as much data as possible. To comp police. stat, right? Yes. All that comp stat stuff. Yeah, LAPD led that, you know, was at the forefront of that with comp stat, with, uh, well, comp stat and NY, and, and with the NYPD, and then uh, one of the people who was involved with comp stat goes on to LAPD and then uh, helps them build Predpol in conjunction with uh, some anthropologists uh, from uh, universities in the area. And, you know, Predpol and all these other technologies end up just being ways to, like, justify old racist policing right um because now you have data that says look like there are more crimes that happen here without like what's the actual reason why more crimes happen here and when you're in that zone you're just as like you know heavily suspected as if you would be outside that zone if you're black or if you're brown and and similarly you know with the unions there's been a there's this moment and they understand it pretty well the unions and the leadership that the public is pushing pretty fiercely with uh, defunding and abolition um, movements, but specifically with reallocating funds at local levels from police departments into, you know, mental health services, into public services. And a great way to undermine that is to convince people that there's no need to fix it and that they can uh, police themselves, right? They can do accountability themselves. And, and that they can, they just need body cams, they just need officers who are willing to testify, and then anyone who hurts someone will be, you know, held accountable and there will be justice. So there's been a big push by the unions to insist that, you know, Derek Chauvin, um, you know, what he did was unique, it was not policing, it was murderous, even though the very unions that have been some of the loudest supporters of, of this narrative also have a long history of people their own members killing civilians, being protected by the union, and uh, all sorts of, uh, you know, like disgusting narratives about the people who they killed being pushed by them. So they're they're not sincere about. Oh, no. I mean, obvious, obviously <laughs> yeah, right. not. That was kind of a, a leading question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you you also mentioned that these uh, democratic operatives, which always feels like. Some people say uh-huh. on, on the part of the media, uh-huh. right, uh, to get into citations needed territory, uh-huh. don't want to step on their turf, uh-huh. um, 
the, the, the Democratic operatives are cautioning Democrats right now about the negative impact that defund messaging might have on them in tight races. Uh -huh. um, I'm not sure what they're supposed to do about that because it's mostly coming from activists right. and not the Democrats themselves. Right. Um, and, and yet, these basic policy ideas described by defund, like what you were saying, cutting police budgets, transferring it to other parts of the state that are, you know, still carceral uh -huh. and very uh, surveillance-y in nature, but are, you know, at least ostensibly designed to keep people alive, like housing, healthcare, education, what have you, uh, these policies pull, pull quite well, even 43% uh, among Republicans. So where does this idea come from? Uh, are, are they just trying to use whatever they can to attack their political enemies? I mean, I think a lot of the opposition is just like intellectual dishonesty. You know, it's just people lying or intentionally misreading polls. I mean, at the, this poll that I cite, this Data for Progress survey was, um, you know, misrepresented it online uh, pretty widely by a bunch of writers who uh, believe that, you know, police, more police and more neighborhoods is the most popular position, right? They think, you know, in particular, I think it's uh, German Lopez has been like a pretty particular you know, opponent of this idea that reducing the policing in certain neighborhoods would um, is favorable, um, especially among black and brown neighborhoods. And so they cited a question where people were asked up front if they wanted to defund the police. But then if you ask them what the actual defund the police uh, movement is calling for, they support it. So mm -hmm. and that tells you that it's not the me it's not a messaging problem. It's just that you know there's been successful propaganda from like anti-defund people to smear it, and there's you know despite that and despite that obvious conclusion, you still have people insisting like these democratic operatives um, that it's dangerous, that it's going to hurt you if you run, or it's going to hurt our chances of like holding onto this narrow majority in the house, and all these other nonsense, all this other nonsense, which puts on the back burner people's lives who are being killed and you know surveilled or uh, dehumanized by the police today word i like it that they have to talk about it though yeah, yeah like. me too <laughs> you know they're for and as they talk about as they're forced to talk about it like it sounds a little silly to be like people don't want mental health services funded of course they fucking do like most a lot some people don't even know that they're not funded well right mm. or they just think that they're funded well but that it's so it's such a difficult thing to deal with someone who's mentally ill they don't have a clear image of how broken and how underfunded you know our services are Word. so to bring it back around to technology a little bit um and, and you mentioned this a second ago um the technocrats, I mean the Democrats, mm -hmm. uh, have repeatedly defaulted to technology as something that's supposed to make policing better, quote unquote, you know, however you define that, uh, whether we're talking about body cameras on cops or replacing Trump's border wall with a smart wall oh. made out of surveillance drones from Palantir. Um, and I think most of our listeners know that this is, you know, ineffectual at best when we're talking about body cameras or other things meant to reduce uh, the murder of civilians or like really fucking dystopian at worst when we're talking about surveillance drones, those fucking robot dogs, etc. But uh, can you unpack this idea a little bit and uh, what's wrong about it and how you think technology is actually going to impact policing going forward? Yeah, you know, I think this this idea kind of feeds into a development that's happened over the past decade or two 
where apps and startups have become um, in the minds of politicians or people who want to, you know, capture uh, political power, like, you know, political solutions, right? And the idea that we should model our social services after a startup or after mm. some app, um, as well as the idea that everything should be digital, right? But because there's no public digital infrastructure, if you just digitize something, you're privatizing it and you're giving mm -hmm. it over to, to one of these companies. And, these, and, you know, I think underlying all of this is an understanding of that, right? Still belief that the private uh, sphere, the private specter, uh, specter can do all this, um, can do everything better, right? And that the public is really only there to redirect funds to them or to get out of the way and then do whatever, you know, these technocrats think it can do. But there's, I think, like a deep down uh, belief that the state is really not good for anything as it, I mean, as they make it, it's not really good for anything other than, you know, locking people up and killing people mm. um, and everything else should be handed over to corporations. Uh, don't, don't forget creating and maintaining markets too. Yeah. The state's <laughs> yeah. really good at Free that. markets. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you don't want unfree markets. And, mm. um, you know, with the police especially, you know, the police constantly insist that with data they can do the job better and keep people safe, uh, safer, right? When the reality is that, you know, crime historically is, you know, at pretty low level. Um, we're still locking up more and more people all the time. The use of technology just justifies the use of more technology. And... It just justifies like the bottom lines of the companies that are involved, of the contracts and the vendors that are involved. Um, it, it's not actually concerned with like social welfare outcomes. It's concerned with you know private profit. Well, and the whole thing is um, <clears throat> like quantitative and data driven by its very nature. It's similar to when you were talking about CompStat earlier, where you're kind of disaggregating all of like the qualitative data about why people might commit crimes, why some neighborhoods are more crime prone than others, what conditions led to this, and abstracting and turning it into a series of numbers that can then be crunched and analyzed using algorithms and shit. It's the same sort of thing. Like these technocrats think that with enough data, you can politically solve any problem because they don't see it as a fundamental problem of society, but as like this small uh, isolated sector, you know, that, that can be like tweaked in one way or the other. Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's just like a long, it's a long uh, pattern of the idea of using numbers and computation to justify already existing like preconceptions of how we're supposed to be and prejudices. Right. And I, I will say, even if it wasn't a completely privatized sector, say the state has some kind of, I don't know, public technology company doing these things. I, I don't think that would fix the basic problems there because, I mean, just look at prisons. Like, the majority of prisons are not private prisons. The majority of prisons are state-run. And they're still bad because they serve the fundamental purpose of, uh, you know, not just, not just policing, but, like, creating surplus populations. Uh, people who are not currently needed by the capitalist economy. A reserve army of labor is a concept we've, we've talked about before. Um, it, it benefits capital to have a reserve army of labor, and it benefits capital to have a racially segmented, se segmented labor force, and a labor force that's segmented in you know, any ways it can think of to do. So, yeah. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't change the basic, uh, the basic problem, which is the social relations of capitalism, which mm -hmm. are upheld by the prison industrial complex. Right. Like a, like you could have 
a prison system owned by like the correctional officers. That's not a good prison or a co-op prison. That's not a good prison, <laughs> right? You know, it's a horrible, odious institution. And like you're saying, right? State-run Google. Uh, no reason to think that would be good. Probably it would just be like a you know NSA on uh, additional implement of the NSA, right? And right. we have to think of ways to what what are problems with some institution and to get rid of the institution or dissolve as much of it as possible. So to kind of back up a little bit, I was um, going through a bunch of your articles in Vice for this, and I gotta say, I gotta say, uh, reading your tech reporting can be pretty harrowing. <laughs> it uh, suggests a country and a world in which uh, nosy neighborhood racists are empowered to create mobs uh, with the Nextdoor app, where oligarchs use algorithms to set grueling pace of work in Dickensian warehouses, where tech companies compete over who can most efficiently implement a Hunger Games scenario for workers, and billions and billions of dollars are put to work so nobody can fight back or even complain. How do you think we got here? And where do you think this is going? I think, um, no, specifically with tech, a lot of people genuinely do believe that technology is different than anything else humans have made and that it has like this magical component to it in which it can unleash liberty and freedom and progress or that it is such a dynamic force it, that we can't really control it and we mm -hmm. can't control how it progresses. And I feel like what I've tried to write about is how it's just like every other thing in our society, especially a capitalist society, which is like it's an instrument of relations and like if you are using it to advance power or preserve the status quo then that's what it's going to end up being used for and if you're using it to try to you know liberate people or try to connect people then that's what it will be used for but it's rarely used in those instances like the people who design technology who who uh, drive its innovation who invest in it and determine what visions get chosen mm -hmm. are not people who care about making you know phones that last forever and are sustainable cars that you know, are not, maybe you don't have to own a car, but that they're accessible to everybody, right? Or, or, or you know, products that last long and are not constantly consumable. They're interested. Or, in, uh, or a neighborhood app that's not there to, right? like, <laughs> snitch people out that might have wandered into the wrong neighborhood to the cops, but maybe help that particular neighborhood help each other out through, like, social services or, like, cooperation or whatever. Exactly. When, when technology is usually deployed, it's a network device that gives a private company more information or private interest more information about your life so it can make you more amenable to getting um sold or you know packaged or uh passed along to some other entity um it's not really like a desirable way to organize how tech is used in our society word so let's zoom in for a second on one of the things sean touched we on. zoomed out now we're zooming back in we're just zooming all over the place. We're honorary Zoomers. Um, so, P.S., hung out with some Zoomers the other night that my friend picked up at the bar, and they do wear some wide-leg-ass jeans. Mm. This, is a, this has been a running thread because we saw a TikTok where Zoomers were making fun of millennials for wearing skinny jeans, and we're like, what the fuck jeans are we supposed to wear? Fucking bell-bottoms? Oh, my God. I'm going to start investing in Jenko shares right now. It's coming back around, baby. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. Uh, yeah, so let's put our Zoomer hats on, zoom in for a second, on these new surveillance techniques 
that uh, you've reported on that Jeff Bezos claims are going to be used to reduce workplace injuries Ooh. at Amazon by tracking workers' muscle movements and, <laughs> you know, moving them around when, you know, one of their muscle groups is getting worn out or whatever. Um, and yet some people think this is creepy. Um, do, do you think that's all these technologies are going to be used for? Do we have reason to be suspicious? Yeah, you know, they're... That technology could have been used to say, okay, this type of work causes this type of injury or this type of pressure on your body. We should limit it. We should change the way the work is done mm-hmm. so that it doesn't do that strain. We should, and if we can't, then we should restrict who's allowed to do it. And instead, they said, no, let's just cycle through it. Let's just make like a robust right. package of like, <laughs> intense work. The, the, the Amazon app is telling me it's leg day today at the warehouse. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Just make a Peloton, essentially. And um, I think, you know, that is the way that the technology and a good you know, overview of how technology is usually used. There's a way to make it socially useful or to alleviate the type of work that people have to do or the burden of work. And instead, it's just used to make sure they can do the maximum amount of burden, uh, burdensome and odious labor as possible so that he can still, you know, extract as much value from them as possible. So I think this is a good lead in for a little bit of political economy that I wanted to do. Um, to kind of explain why this is happening and why it's being driven by the basic directives of capitalism. Um, So here's a a tweet a while back from our sweet velvet boy, Nathan Robinson. Okay. Who is, you know, he's right about some things, but I I would say his uh, his distaste for Marx uh, does not serve him very well when it comes to understanding uh, the, you know basic the shit that's running the world uh and the social relations driving the social relations of capitalism so he said i I think he's a bit of a utopian socialist i feel like he might not even disagree with that uh characterization but he had a tweet this was very well intentioned where he said the reason you can get one day delivery is that the delivery driver has to shit in the van if amazon was honest its delivery options would ask if you want one week delivery and the driver gets to see their family or prime delivery, and the driver has to piss in a bottle at 40 miles per hour. So, my friend Jorge, actually. Friend uh, of the show. Friend of the show. He's in my capital reading group with me. We've been reading, you know, reading the good book uh, oh, together. Think, yeah, he told me about, yeah. Oh, you know him? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. He told me about the group when it first started, but I was, I was being a lazy shit at the time and didn't join any reading groups. <laughs> oh, Who, well, whom's among us? There's, there's always a capital reading group starting somewhere. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully we've inspired some people to do it. I'm like pretty big, pretty big fan, I would say, of, uh, of our boy Marx. But he has a thread, Jorge, where he says, while I agree with the spirit of the argument, and, and Nathan Robinson has, you know, he, the thread continues where he's basically pitting um, customer interests versus the interests of the workers mm. and kind of leaves the boss out of it in... Uh, in a way that I think is lacking. So Jorge says, while I agree with the spirit of the argument, this will literally never happen under the capitalist mode of production. We talk plenty about surplus value, but we don't talk about, uh, but what we don't talk about enough is the distinction between different kinds of surplus value, absolute and mm-hmm. relative. So if I may, I'm gonna try to simplify things 
right down to the essence, all right? Please. So if, you, if you agree with our boy marks, which I think all of us here do, uh, you know the workday is divided up into two portions. Let's call them A to B and B to C. So A to B is the amount of time it takes for the worker to generate the amount of value uh, to replace the amount of value that they take out of the world that day with staying alive, right? And that's from A to B. And then from B to C is something called surplus value, right? And the value generated during that time period belongs to the boss. The mm -hmm. boss gets to pocket it and, you know, use it to, well, use it for whatever they want to, actually. So there's two kinds of surplus value, right? There's two, two ways for capitalists to maximize their profit. There's a thing called absolute surplus value, where they can lengthen the workday so the time for B to C is greater. Um, and they have been doing that, but there are certain limits on it. You know, workers got to go to sleep yeah. at some point in time. There's only so many hours in the day. Exactly. Um, so another way they can do it is called relative surplus value, which is to say increasing the productivity of the worker during the time that they are working. So they can squeeze more surplus value out of them in the same amount of time, right? So it says the length of a working day can only inform you to the quantity of labor during the workday. It cannot inform you about the quality of labor during the working day. This is where this concept of relative surplus value is needed. Relative surplus value is what the capitalist extracts from a worker by getting more value during a fixed amount of time that they work. This can be done by lowering the wages of a worker, lowering the cost of operations, or by increasing the productivity of the worker. The importance of automation for the capitalist is this third option. By making the labor of a worker more productive, the capitalist can make each individual worker's labor increase in output and avoid hiring more workers. In other words, the labor of the worker is intensified. To return to Amazon, the reason Amazon workers piss in bottles and shit in bags is because of this intensification of labor. By trying to optimize the amount of deliveries a worker can deliver, each individual Amazon worker's labor is more productive than before. Given the sheer amount of volume of deliveries Amazon must complete, the firm must either hire more workers, which we know they don't want to do, or make each individual worker do more work, either by working more hours or making each hour more efficient. There is simply no going around this reality. For life to be better for the workers, the capitalists must be forced to do so. There are no incentives for the capitalists to go against the logic of capitalism. This is why the union effort matters so much. Only through class struggle can workers take power from the capitalists. So I think that was a pretty good little summary of why Jeff Bezos is doing this to people. It's not just yeah. to be mean, right? Because capitalists have to compete on the marketplace. And if other capitalists, uh, if one capitalist decides to be nice to the workers and let them take bathroom breaks and the other ones do not, then, you know, that capitalist is going to fucking fail and, you know, be thrown back into, from, from the class of exploiters back into the class of the exploited, you know? Yeah, and, and there's a colloquial use of the term exploitation, and people will use it um, towards, like, Amazon workers being exploited under these horrible conditions in the warehouses. People will say, like, sweatshop workers in the third world are being exploited, uh, that's all true, but they're only being exploited at a higher rate than other people. Exploit, that process of exploitation is always happening. 
It's that uh, expropriation of the surplus from the worker. So whenever we work, we're always being exploited. But what unions try to do and what workers try to do in general is to try to decrease that rate, that amount of exploitation happening. And that's going to happen to Amazon and that's going to happen everywhere. Yeah, you know, I think these are key points because then it raises the question, you know, a lot of people will then look at a firm like Amazon and say Amazon is genuinely productive because it's genuinely innovative and it has some sort of secret sauce in its technology and its arrangement and its and its um, you know solutions to certain logistical problems. But the reality is, right, that it does come down to how much they've been able to get out of workers and how productive they've been able to make them and how the, you know, the sheer volume that each and every single one of them is operating at, has to operate at, and if they can't, will simply just get tossed out on their ass, right? Um, it's not that Amazon has solved some long age or, or some long standing issues with how to get things from point A to point B faster. It's just that it's demands you know, of its workers to get to point A to point B faster, right? Yeah, it's, a, it's an intensification mm-hmm. uh, of labor, and it, it's happening as has happened in production since the beginning of capitalism, this intensification is happening in the realm of circulation. And so for capitalism in general, what Amazon and Bezos does is very positive because while those Amazon workers who are moving things through warehouses and delivering them aren't actually like necessarily adding more value themselves, they're increasing the turnover time uh, of capital so that more goods can be uh, consumed faster. And so this is giving a real juice uh, to the capitalist economy. There's no doubt about it. But um, we, I think we see the limits of that. And I think Bezos and company are running up against the limits of it. Not, not just the, the temporal limits, you know, and that there's only so much time in the day, not just the physical limits that you can only push people so hard with algorithms and robots before they break, but also, I think, importantly, a social limit. A social and political limit, and when the um, when the big union drive was going on, and then of course it failed. There was a lot of talk about how dehumanizing this work is, and that's the that's the final frontier. There is 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 people coming together and saying we won't accept this level, this rate of exploitation, and I think that's happening. Yeah, let's talk about the, the labor and tech. Well, sorry, I'll, I'll let you respond first if you want to. Edward. No, no. I mean, I agree with everything you know that was said. I think it's right. Hell yeah, that's why we like you. So, <laughs> so we we've heard at least some vague gestures from the Biden administration that they believe that companies like Amazon should be unionized. Um, Biden had this extremely milk toast endorsement of the union drive in Bessemer, Alabama. Um, he basically thought, said all workers deserve access to a union. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Equal access to a union, right? We had last year, the House Judiciary Committee had this antitrust hearing with big tech CEOs. Um, like, there, there have been some, you know, gestures made at getting big tech under control. Um, is, are, are these efforts sincere in any way? And if so, what does that say about the potential effectiveness of any of these measures? If I could just throw a zinger out real quick, I would say, you know that Biden and Obama before him were serious about regulating big tech. And that's why so many of their alumni, so many of their advisors have gone directly to be CEOs of these tech companies and create these uh, anti-union drives and stuff. Yeah, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful, it's the circle of life, you know? It's it's this insane revolving door between the Democratic Party and like big tech. I would, I would definitely say, you know, 
you know, for example, with that Biden union drive, you know, there was a lot of excitement around it, but also to step back, it's like, that's the excitement I think suggests like how little U.S. presidents have ever really like cared right. about unions, right? Where, I mean, under the Obama administration, when Scott Walker was uh, guiding public unions, Jay Carney, you know, um, who is now Amazon's chief flack, mm-hmm. um, was saying, yeah, the president thinks, you know, this is an important battle because um, states have to balance their budgets just like households, oh. you know. <laughs> so maybe the union deserves to get cut down to size. Um, Thanks, Obama. Right. And now, and so Biden, I think Biden does genuinely believe in unions, but not in like the the sort of radical potential that we see in them, you know, as leftists, uh, as uh, socialists, I think that he sees them as like, you know, this is just, it's a nice thing that would be in your workplace. It's, it would be cool if you had a union because you could, you know, maybe get like lock in some wage increases, maybe get some expansion to your benefits. Whereas like, you know, we would see it as this is a way for workers to get together and actually, you know, take shit away from uh, their bosses, from management and shift the power dynamic in the workplace to democratize it. I think the smart Democrats like Biden and and others in his administration and many of the uh, people in Congress are desperate right now to try to figure out some way out of this stagnation, this persistent stagnation. And so they look back in history and they can do this to a different time in America between the 1930s and the 1970s when it seemed like capitalism was more stable and they can point somewhat rightfully to unions as being this regulatory force, mm-hmm. you know. But what I think we saw in Bessemer, and we—I don't think on the on the podcast we've unpacked that loss. I know we did on the stream. Uh, what we saw in Bessemer is that it's not just in a different economy than it was in the 1950s. It's uh, it's also a, a different. Um, a different like class composition. It's a different way that people work, and it's a, and different conditions that workers face today than they did that back then. Uh, there's no longer the kind of long-term stable employment, you know, that unions were, um, were were part of of creating. Because there's no longer like long-term stable industries that workers can be hired in, you know, and that that'll, a job that'll last thirty or forty years. So I guess what I'm saying is that Bessemer was an interesting attempt. To unionize and its failures, maybe something we should look at in terms of like strategies, what went wrong, and maybe what could what could be right. Do you have any ideas about that? Yeah, you know, I think also there's um, you know, the the left and you know anything left of um, you know hoarding every single uh, shard of capital for like oneself uh, has been decimated. You know, and so the sort of support networks and the support of political organizations and the support of you know, networks that existed when, you know, in Bessemer and in the South, more generally, there was, you know, pretty militant, you know, organizing and, and union political efforts. Um, that's gone, right, to right. a large extent. And that is also, I think that's just also as important as, like you're saying, the composition and the reality of work nowadays. Because if you, you know, people are incredibly atomized and isolated, and if you're unable to just simply connect to other people in a shared struggle, it makes it makes organizing and it makes political uh, agitation and activism a lot more difficult. And this is the flip side too of this tech discussion because we're talking about it in terms of like capital and profits and, and changing industries. But the same technology that makes it so difficult 
to, I'm sorry, the same technology that's radically changed the way that people communicate with one another has also led to a point where people, especially since COVID, are so much more alienated, right? And it makes it that much harder to burst through. Technology isn't the cause of that, but it right. is like a huge effect right. uh, that you see in not just in union struggles, but like er everywhere in America. Yeah, I that's all that's all very true and it's all making me like a little suspicious of these traditional kinds of labor organizing and their power to uh really uh swing the balance of power back towards workers in a way that might be able to ultimately overflow its bounds and you know not just say, well, we want a fairer deal. We want a fair day's pay for fair day's work but actually, you know, democratize the economy and, you know, overflow its bounds the way we're hoping that union struggles do, right? Like, mm. uh, like it could be so easily recuperated. And if, if I could jump in too, um, the, all of the postmortems from, from Bessemer, from the Amazon unionization struggle, seem to suggest that... Um, there were some union militants, some working worker militants, like in the rank and file that were helping to push this drive forward. But it wasn't an initiative that came directly out of like the mass militancy of of the workers within that uh, Amazon warehouse. It was, in fact, something where the union, you know, this top down union went and saw this as an opportunity to grow and then try to create a sort of milit militancy within the rank and file. So very different, right, than like you know, an independent, assertive, militant push by the workers themselves. Yeah, you know. Yeah, that's... Oh, go Sorry. Ahead. Let our guests uh, speak. <laughs> I was just going to say that I think they, like, there are two, there's also been, you'll see some discussions where it's like, okay, the, as one example, the PRO Act would be a chance to rectify a lot of the fundamental failures in labor law that allow corporations to have so many advantages before union drive but starts. I, I never paused it on the audacity, so. Yeah, yeah, me neither. Okay, good. All right, it's recording again. Here we go. Where were we? Do you remember, Edward, what? Oh, I was, um, I was talking about how, so there, you know, there's two arguments, or there's two, I guess, like general approaches or tags where it's like one is okay labor law is fundamentally flawed since the Wagner Act because corporations have you know achieved so many carve-outs and, ex and exceptions and um, diminishments and you know reframing of the law that they have huge advantages before a union drive during the union drive and then also after just to make sure that you know like half of all the unions I guess you know, that win an election don't even end up having the union, right? Because right. of the bullshit that they're able to pull after that. Yeah, they never even get a contract, mm -hmm. even after all that. And so there's, you know, one act, one way to, do, you know, rectify that might be, for example, with the PRO Act. And then there's others who are, you say, you know, the PRO Act would probably be good for the system that we're in, but the system that we're in is also not a good system. We should scrap it all together and have a different labor law regime, one that focuses on, you know, democratized workplaces, on worker councils, a much more militant and, agit and agitatory, uh, agitational, um, you know, collective for workers to operate within. Um, and, you know, I see, uh, I see the merit in both. I mean, obviously, you know, I would love for something where it's like we, you know, total, you know, democratization of the economy, but I also don't know what is the best path forward right now in this moment because we need people to get worker power and 
you know, benefits and protections in the workplace right now. And that can yield to all things. But if we do that through these moves, does that make permanent the, the things we don't like about labor laws that exist today, right. the limitations of it? I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's, a real, uh, it's a real dichotomy. I don't know if it's a dialectic. <laughs> I guess the dialectic has to be progressing somewhere and like, we'll, we'll see about that. But like, uh, so yeah, like I'm, I'm sort of sympathetic to the kind of left com critique of at least these traditional business unions and this organizing model that we've been seeing tech workers trying to apply to this new kind of economy, um, organizing with business unions like the UFCW and the RWDSU. Um, and, and on the one hand, uh, I guess maybe it makes sense because a lot of these things are just the same old things the same old services, you know, like grocery shopping, house cleaning, taxis, whatever, whatever. Just, you know, there's a tech company pretending that they have done something innovative with it. Um, but at the same time, it, it, it's shifted so much. Like, and, and it's so easy for capital to recuperate these things. Like, like when I see Joe Manchin supporting the PRO Act, it doesn't make me think, oh, wow, all this organizing we've been doing has really pushed the Democrats to the left. Mm. Like, it just, because I know that that's not, <laughs> that's not what happened. Right. Because I know we don't have that much, that kind of power. Um, it, it just makes me suspicious of the PRO Act itself and these traditional modes of organizing's um, potential to have impact on anything except for maybe, maybe these narrow struggles over wages and benefits, you know? So, like, I'll see my left-com friends saying stuff like, well, this has absolutely nothing to do with socialism. And then I'll see other people saying, like, well, what the fuck else are we supposed to do right now? You know, like, I don't see a path to socialism that doesn't run through uh, labor organizing, and this is the model that we have for it. So, like, well, I don't know. Like, you think, does this have radical potential at all, or is a totally new approach going to be necessary? I mean, I think, you know, for a sort of revolutionary break, a new approach is necessary. But I think that, you know, working within the system and working within a system that's tilted a little bit more towards workers can yield victories and enough victories to concentrate power on the workers. Because right now where we are, there's no way in hell we're going to like get an overhaul of the Wagner Act. And if we tried to do it inside of Congress, it would most likely be a more reactionary document, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, we just do not have the sort of progressives. We don't have the sort of labor movement. We don't have the sort of economic crisis in the background. Um, or we don't even have a ruling class that is concerned with, like, preserving itself, right? Right, um, right. You know, and those are all the things that allowed for Wagner Act and also allowed for some labor law to be passed. And if it were today, I mean, it would just probably, you know, they'd probably just make it more legal for them to loot the ship, if anything else. So... But also at the same time, it's like we should if we do these changes and we do these reforms, we should also be sure to chart that path to getting there, because that's where we want to be. We don't want to be uh, constantly reforming uh, a broken system. We want to to give birth to a new one or to create the seat or you know, create the seeds and the foundation for the new one within this old one. I think that there's a missing ingredient here. You know, you have these sort of political and economic conditions right now. Uh, you have this like exploitative, uh, precarious economy. You've got uh, segments of capital wanting American consumers to have more money. You've got all these things, but one, the one thing you don't have 
is a mass militant proletarian movement in the sh uh, in shop floors uh, all all around the country. And I mean, if you wanted to really change labor law, I think you need to do what's been done in the past: is you need to present the ruling class with a fate accompli. Mm -hmm. You know, so, you know, people need to start organizing as though. You know, as though it were legal, as though like what they were doing with in order to push those bounds. You know what I mean? And we just, we haven't seen that yet. And until we see that, I don't see I don't see the possibility for for politicians or capitalists to legislate working class power. I think it has to come from us ultimately. Yeah, you know that, that's a real issue. It's it's something like even like striking. You know, like I think we I would love and I. I think every, you know, all of us would love to see strikes nationwide, um, disrupting industry as uh, part of that strategy. And some roadblocks there, like, you know, do we have the funds to do it? Do we have the way, do we, and even if we don't have the funds to do it, do we have solidarity networks where people can just support each other and rely on each mm -hmm. other? Um, rebuilding all that is like a great, is going to be a huge task, not just for the purpose of you know, striking, but also to amplify all organizing across every level of society where if you know you can rely on people who are struggling with you then you can you're more willing to take that risk whatever it may be so on a similar note um we've seen some efforts recently by white collar workers at tech companies to organize we have like a, a really small attempt at a union by some workers at google um there, there's more that i could pull up but i'm lazy um like what do these have any kind of potential like i tend to be skeptical of them because you know on the one hand these people are not essential workers right they're so they're, they're not performing any function essential to supporting human life uh, but on the other hand you know the economy is increasingly dependent on this kind of fictitious capital that exists outside of uh of that realm and and you know maybe maybe white collar workers have a little like 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 some things to fall back on you know they're typically more privileged they might have some money in reserve so like i don't know what what's what's the potential there you know i think the one thing i think about is you know you know as you said these are small attempts but also it's you know in silicon valley people the workers didn't even think of themselves as workers for a mm. long time and that was because of how hegemonic now, you know, powerful the propaganda that uh, they were being fed was. And the, the shift now to see themselves as workers, I think, is an important one. The shift to start seeing their projects as like, oh, this is immoral. Like, this is something that I don't want to be a part of and I can stop or try to stop or good developments. And so the question is, how do we get it so that it can scale up? Because I agree with you. It's not it's not, I think the for them, the value of the union is they're not essential workers. But they are working in like a, a sector of the economy that is, I think, essential to, you know, what is capitalism right now, right? The, the ability of a lot of firms to generate bullshit, the ability of the state to generate endless contracts to kill people or surveil people. You know, Silicon Valley sits at the center of that. And, to, and if we can push workers to... Um, you know, be more cognizant of that, be more willing to take power and be confrontational there, that'd be a that'd be a that'd be a step in the right direction. But it's not gonna, you know, replace the fact that we need to get rid of those firms, right? Like you can be a you can be a you can have that decision to not be involved in unethical stuff at Google, but it's Google, you know? 
Well, uh, we, like uh, you say, uh, get rid of these firms. I mean, I'm pretty sure that most of them aren't even profitable. They might get rid of themselves someday, right? Like Uber and whatever. Like most of these companies have been operating at a loss for like a decade. And they are just kind of built up and uh, puffed up by um, tons of, of fictitious capital flowing into them. Assuming that someday, maybe 2025 or 3035, that they might actually, you know, make a profit. Yeah, you know, like I think, and that's also another thing, right? A lot of these firms are not profitable. The big ones that are, I think, if moves are made there, um, they can have ripples through the industry. But then we just come back to the question. It's like, okay, um, you can have a union at Google. You can have a union at Foxconn. You can have a union at um, Boeing, you know, but it's Boeing, it's Foxconn, it's, it's Google. You know, like these are firms that their very business model and their central orientation is towards stuff that is not socially useful or if it is you have to make a really convincing argument to me that it is um so is that union going to be for the purpose of just like continuing that they get a fair a fair shake there or for helping us redesign an economy that is full of socially uh, socially useful production right like you could unionize Palantir, but that wouldn't That's change right. the essential function of Palantir. It's like what we were talking about with prisons, right? right? You could have a co-op prison, but do you want a co-op prison? Right. I don't want a co-op prison like, at all. In- international Raytheon workers, local one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I wanna, here's another interesting thing, I think, for, um, <clears throat> for the listeners and also for me, because I, I find this stuff fascinating. Can you explain to people who are not insufferable un, insufferable nerds what a non-fungible token is <laughs> and how that fits into this Bitcoin craze that's going on right yeah, now? Yeah, they're made out of computers, so you know that's <clears throat> that's what they are. <laughs> no, there's um Call me crazy, but it seems like just another attempt by capital to come up with more and more implausible and complicated ideas to turn money into money. It is. So you mine Bitcoin um, by, you know, running like a bunch of cars in some bunker uh, and generating enough electricity <laughs> to solve some math problem. You, you, you create an NFT by um, – it's a non-fungible token, so it's not replicable and it's supposed to represent – something but it's because it the token itself is the representation of it that has value and only you can own it and it and it has like some identifier attached to it that proves that you own it um and it's supposed to be like a cool way to fuck i don't know really you know i, I, mean, I read all these defenses of it and yeah. they don't they're incoherent to me because at the end of the day it's just like a more it's a fancier token it's a fancier digital token that has even more intensive um environmental costs and less protection for everyone involved if i take down you know the uh the infrastructure of whatever is hosting the token like then it, i can also like you know if i know enough uh replicate it and pretend like i own it right or just you know remove your your proof of ownership or but they'll say oh no it's on the blockchain so you can't actually do that but i mean i don't know it's blockchain 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 that's, not that's all you hear and and it's also yeah. like yeah it, there's a defense that it's for artists right it helps them um you know get their work more out there it, it helps them prove that they own something or made something but there's nothing stopping me from just making an nft of something you have and mm. and saying it's mine so what the fuck is it for <laughs> It seems to me like like a way to create artificial scarcity of digital commodities, 
right? Like make it like the, that's like the, the magic of, of tech and how it's kind of changed everybody's lives. Certainly changed like musicians lives mm-hmm. is that it's like infinitely reproducible. But the NFT seems like an attempt to like actually pull back on that and create like an artificial scarcity. Shittier diamond, digital product. They're like you know what are those uh, those toys that people went wild for in the nineties? I mean, it's just like a shittier version of that. It's harder to use. You'll lose it almost certainly. And you and who knows? <laughs> you know who knows how to actually like, trade them or interact with them except for the people who sell them anyway. So. I just know that the same people who are obsessed with NF, NF, NFTs are the people who are obsessed with uh, incel money, like Bitcoin and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's just it's huge blockchain craze right now. What do you think about um, Bitcoin and Dogecoin and all that stuff? Uh, I hope uh, you'll get it all out of here. I I don't want any of that shit. You know, look, long term, <laughs> I'm sure it's, you know, it actually would be good long term to have some sort of digital currency. I don't think that the way to do it is with, with with the blockchain. I don't think the way to do it is with um, you know any of these cryptocurrencies. And I don't think that we should be doing it when we also have currencies right now that have uh, values that are not exactly concrete. Right? We should let's let's fix a financial system and a monetary system before we start doing you know crypt- digital currencies. I think that's just me though. Or or destroy the economy. Yes, that's also, yeah. <laughs> By fixing what? it, it's blowing it up. <laughs> why, why don't we simply just destroy the economy? It's, it's, probably, it's probably easier to, like, find and corrupt all the servers that hold the blockchain than it would be to, say, storm all the Federal, federal Reserves. Yeah. So that's something. Yeah, Mr. Robot, but, for, but the 5-9 attack is on, like, Coinbase. Oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, this is reminding me, too, of some stuff we've talked about on the show before about how some some workplaces need to be uh democratized and others just need to be fucking destroyed um and and like not to jump back well i'm gonna do it i'm just gonna do it like the thing i worry about with this tech organizing is that you know it's mostly going to be done by most of the people who work in tech are liberals or libertarians uh right so so we'll get stuff like the anti-racism notification that's oh, supposed yeah. to remind people not to be racist <laughs> yeah. on the Nextdoor app, which is a real about. thing. Yeah, I read that article. Holy shit! <laughs> like how? Like how? Uh, like how is that going to stop people from being racist? Well, they'll get a notification and they can uh, self-correct. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, say, yeah, oh, yeah. that, yeah, why am I saying something that got a notification? <laughs> <laughs> Have I been racist this whole time? <laughs> <laughs> no, next door is racist. And then the next post will be about how next door is silencing them. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> They're going to create another, like, anti woke next door yeah. to compete. <laughs> like, Gab. It's going to be yeah, parlor doors, is what it's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> Don't give them any ideas. <laughs> <laughs> so fuck this is all kind of bleak but let's yeah let's talk about it i mean <laughs> it is a bleak world you know uh you gotta you gotta make sure your hatred's pure enough you know because otherwise it's really hell it's yeah. really really depressing things are dire um but on the other side of that is like a, is really a world of opportunity i mean things are dire because every other opportunity has been bricked off and walled off and all the energy's been poured into that but like if we can get past that really dark dreary bleak <laughs> you know chasm mm-hmm. anything i almost anything is possible you know i think hell yeah well you call yourself a luddite and i want to dig into that a little bit 
because uh, I'm interested. I'm interested in in this concept. Uh, Andy is the one that wants to turn off the internet. He's the king of the Luddites. Oh. Yeah, like why? Why does technology manifest in these antisocial ways? And like, I guess we've been talking about that a little bit. It's mostly designed by like incredibly privileged people who thinks everyone's experience is the same as theirs and we just need to like perfect this you know this capitalist techno society and everything will be perfect and uh nobody will starve to death i don't know obviously we know that's bullshit but like what would a socialist vision of technology look like like is there's some stuff that we definitely need to get rid of but is there a way to design it around human needs like what are you getting at when you call yourself a luddite and if you could press a button and turn off the internet forever, would you do it? <laughs> That's a good question. I think about it. Because, you know, I think the the Luddites, you know, are usually mischaracterized as people who just hate progress and through and destroyed all the machines that were automating with their, their lives. But when you look back at the situation that was happening at the time in England, uh, the machines that they broke were machines that had existed for you know, I want to say 100, 200 years at that point and had not been used to automate uh, away their jobs and had been used to augment their labor, you know, often to make them more productive. Um, when they destroyed machines, they only destroyed the machines of people, uh, of bosses who were using the machines to replace laborers. And it was mm -hmm. a very calculated, you know, secret sort of society thing where they'd go around and trying to smash and destroy machinery and productive machinery used by bosses to uh, undermine the livelihood of people. And I think that's a good, you know, sort of premise to have or a belief to have. If there is a system that exists and its sole purpose is to either undermine your livelihood or hurt you, I mean, I feel that you have a moral duty to, to break it or to sabotage it. You know, whether that means you're, you know, let's say you're an engineer working at some company and you have the chance to poison a data set that's going to be used to, like, create surveillance. That means you're in a neighborhood where there's Amazon uh, rings being set up and, you know, you have a chance to organize some people to say, hey, can you get that out of your house? And if that doesn't work, to break them. I mean, there are all sorts of ways in which we can get involved in breaking stuff or sabotaging or bypassing it that can be destroying it or it can also just be um, convincing people not to use it. That can also be subverting it and not participating in it. I think, you know, one interesting example is like there's this, uh, uh, you know, one of my favorite anti-surveillance, um, you know, advocates and scholars on Twitter, hypervisible, like refuses to, you know, show any sort of image of themselves online. Um, because, you know, as part of them not, you know, taking any part in surveillance, right? And also trying to normalize the idea that you don't need to take part in surveillance. And that's like also an interesting idea. I mean, there's, there's a whole range of things, but the idea behind Luddism is like, you know, things shouldn't exist and technology shouldn't be deployed if the first and foremost priority is not human beings. If it's not socially useful production, production, it shouldn't be happening. And if it's, you know, socially harmful, it definitely should not exist. And and then if, you know, something is hurting or harming people, then you got to break it. And it's up to you and a group of people to decide what form you want to do that. Oh, yeah. Probably, uh, that's that's a much better answer to this question than I've heard from a lot of people, right? Because, like, everybody knows that shit is wrong. Uh, but, like, I haven't heard that many convincing uh, ideas, you know, short of 
revolution as to what to fucking do about it. Like, I've read articles in Jacobin that think uh, companies like Amazon just need to be nationalized, right? And then that, I, I guess, hypothetically subjects them to more democratic control, but, like, not in, not in this nation, right? right? <laughs> then there's, there's, like, left liberals who think the solution is to use um, antitrust legislation in this kind of top-down technocratic way to, like, break up these companies, you know, reset, set, turn the clock back, on capitalism and have like the good competitive kind of capitalism the you know? great reset Elizabeth <laughs> yeah. Warren kind of thing where like ooh capitalism without rules is, is death right. like they should literally put that on a fucking t-shirt but like like these things just don't they, they're just like no like mm -hmm. the, None of these things are going to do shit. No, they're completely inadequate to the scope of the problem, for sure. Yeah. You know, every day, almost every day, we are all inundated with messages about how horrible things are and how bad technology or certain uh, actors who are advancing forms of technology are, um, you know, mucking up our world. And we're told all the time that the solution then is like something that does not match, like this apocalyptic vision. You're told like it's to vote or it's to, you know, pass some legislation or it's to do a petition or to use some different type of tech. Versus like it if it if you if you like if it is causing or accelerating extinction of the species, you have like a duty to break it. You have a duty to convince other people you have a duty to break it and you have a and you and just work together from that basis and trying to and trying to uh, realize that even if it's in your locale, if it's in your home, if it's in your you know, neighborhood or you know anywhere else, you can you have the power to do so. I mean, how fitting if uh, you know these these um, these technologies and these apps and um, these companies who have been helping to alienate us for all these decades from each other? How fitting would it be for us to come together collectively? and work to destroy them. That would be a way we could not only do the good work of getting rid of these tech capitalists, but also we could rediscover each other and we could like mm -hmm. have a collective project to work on. It sounds nice. Yeah, you know, I think, and, there, and there's value in it, you know, getting together with people offline and talking about like if you're in your neighborhood, there are things you need to get rid of or just talking with other people online and convincing them that something should not exist and that should be the goal of the society. If you're going to do the left liberal approach, then then it's not simply breaking up, it's banning, you know, uh, the approach of some things, which some of them are interested in. I mean, I think all of these things fall under the umbrella of it and the benefit of being a Luddite is the ability to, you know, dip into whatever, wherever people are at and meet them there. And listen, like maybe the thing to do and maybe people are going to start doing this uh, after they listen is to start infiltrating the next door app and going in there and trying to create like like a different way for neighbors to interact with one another. You know, long march through the applications. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. I read a story recently. Uh, of course, I don't have it to pull up once more because I suck at this. But uh, some striking uh Forget if they're they like working for the internet company. Oh, yeah, Spectrum, can, the Spectrum, the Striking yeah, Spectrum workers. The Striking Spectrum workers, like, like they know how to build their own, they're like, they're creating this independent internet network. Mm -hmm. Like, what what's going on with that? That sounds pretty cool. Yeah, you know, that's a really fascinating effort. Um, and it makes, and it also comes in line with, you know, efforts that have been going on in New York City to, um, to build, like, a, I think it's a mesh network, like, you know, the sort of internet network that you'd be able to access from anywhere or in certain neighborhoods, but or, and they're building it out. 
And, you know, the idea there, I think, is a really good one, which is if you're if a company is going to kick you out and you have the technical know-how, then just make a competitor or at least make like some alternative that people in a specific area can use. Right. Um, because everyone fucking hates Spectrum. Everyone, fucking, you know, everyone hates yeah. all these Internet companies and all these telecom monopolies. Um, why, why should the people who used to work at them not use their ability, their know-how and their ability to connect with each other to make an alternative, right? It's a really exciting, that's like a really exciting and action example of like what people could do if they just, you know, connect it, uh, to each other and say, let's just prioritize like uh, serving people instead of uh, profit. I mean, it's dual power, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. Like it's dual power in action. The idea that we can um, kind of build a new world in the shell of the old through these mutual aid networks, uh, independent internet, whatever, whatever, um, that, you know, at some point in time, there's going to be a rupture, there's going to be a collapse, and these new institutions need to be ready to step in and basically run society, you know, both by providing for people's basic needs and, you know, having some, some political content there. Yeah, you know? it's like, you know, David Graeber used to talk about, you know, living as if you were already free and the, a part of that being not simply like a license to do whatever you want, but that if you want to build the, another world, right, you have to, you have to envision it and you have to act or figure out how you know you would act in that world or figure out what things need to happen and, and working to build that with other people, you know, working, uh, like you said, to build dual power, build like, you know, the seeds of the, the new world inside of the old one, especially because the old one is dying. Mm. Hell yeah. That's, uh, I think that's as good a place as any to end it. Uh, anything else? Any other questions, Jamie, or anything else? Oh, no, I was just going to ask you uh, to plug your podcast yeah. and tell us a little bit about mm -hmm. it because it's pretty cool. Yeah, if, um, you know, it's This Machine Kills. You can find us on Twitter, at Machine Kills Pod, and on Patreon and SoundCloud and anywhere else you can listen to podcasts. And there we talk about the political economy of technology. Uh, we try to flesh out what Luddism is a bit more. We try to analyze, um, you know, analyze current uh, current affairs and technologies that are behind them or involved in them, and the politics of the technologies involved. I think like the main premise of the show is just agitprop against innovation, against all the bullshit uh, Silicon Valley's convinced you is true about technology that you may not even realize is bullshit. Hell yeah! Between between that and trash future, people will have a uh, a good vision of how fucked up this world is, and hopefully how to change it. Mm -hmm. That's yeah, that's the goal. We want people to realize like things are really bad, but that um, it's not hopeless. You know, people have tried to do experiments and they failed, but they failed not because they tried to; they failed because you know we're up against like a an implacable foe right. um, yeah Jamie is that a cat um, scratching in the kitty litter in the background no, that's me that's my cat doing that uh, that's your cat okay <laughs> that's a hell of a way to end it <laughs> we are a pro cat podcast for sure <laughs> all cats are beautiful <laughs> and his feet I do little admire 
I'll sing the achievements of General Lord, now the hero of Nottinghamshire. Brave Lord was to measures of violence unused, till his sufferings became so severe. That at last to defend his own interests he roused, and for the great fight did prepare. The guilty may fear, but no vengeance he aims at the honest man's life or estate. His wrath is entirely confined to white frames and to those that all prices abate. Those engines of mischief were sentenced to die by unanimous vote of the trade. And Lord, who can all opposition defy, was the grand executioner made. And when in the work he destruction employs, himself to no method confines. By fire and by water he gets them destroyed, for the elements aid his designs. Whether guarded by soldiers along the highway, or closely secured in a room, he shivers them up by night and by day, and nothing can soften their doom. He may censure great Lord's disrespect for the laws, who ne'er for a moment reflects. That foul imposition alone was the cause which produced these unhappy effects. Let the haughty, the humble, no longer oppress, and shall achieve his conquering sword. His grievances instantly meet with redress, then peace shall be quickly restored. Let the wise and the great lend their aid and advice, nor ere their assistance withdraw, till full-fashioned work at the old-fashioned price is established by custom and law. Then the trade, when this arduous contest is o'er, shall raise in full splendour its head. And colting and cutting and squaring no more shall deprive honest workers of bread.